Hello and welcome to today's podcast with Dr. David McGrath, who's Head of Student Health here in Trinity College, Dublin. David talks about the often catastrophic effects of COVID on student mental health and looks at the things that students can do to keep their health on track, both their mental and physical health. Uh, he also reminisces about his time as a student doctor, where he worked in Kenya in the 1980s when nobody had heard of AIDS, but the effects of the disease were already evident, and talks about what it was like to, to face a pandemic that was poorly understood, rather like COVID today. Thanks for joining us, David. Uh, this is a slightly unusual interview. Normally when, when, I, when I talk to people, I don't necessarily know them that well. But I do know you quite well in a professional capacity because both of us, in different ways, had to think about COVID in universities over the last few years. Uh, I think I'm talking to you at a very good time in your, in your career. You're sitting in the middle of a brand new medical centre, which is really quite, quite almost space age. It feels fantastic. It kind of feels like you could stand up to a medical centre almost anywhere. And I'm talking to you after you recently were awarded an honorary degree by, by Trinity. Quite an unusual thing, actually, for a, for a college doctor. And that was really in recognition of the fact that you uh, uh, steered the ship, uh, with other people, of course, but you, you were very much uh, a steady presence as we went through the, the COVID pandemic. So I, I imagine, David, that you're feeling pretty satisfied with life right now. Are you? <laughs> That's... I'm absolutely thrilled that we're in our new health centre. Um, <clears throat> when, I, when I came to Trinity in 2006, uh, I, was, I was brought on a tour of sites uh, in the college and asked where I would like the new health centre to be. And there were three different sites, and uh, one of them is now the TBSI, the Biosciences uh, Institute, and another is now the new business school, and another is down near the sports centre. And all of those passed us by uh, when a, a college health uh, centre was being uh, considered. And at some, one stage we thought we'd never see a new health centre. And we were, as a team, we were working from a very small premises that you'll know very well. Um, an architect had designed it maybe 30 years ago and was told the combined number of students and staff in the college would never exceed 10,000 and build a health centre that will fit that. And now between students and staff, we're probably up near 24 or 5,000. So uh, it was really fantastic to move into New Health Centre. Presumably, as, as kind of head of student health, you probably had a, a big input into how this was designed. What were you trying to achieve? What questions or, or problems were you trying to address in the design? Well, first of all, we were trying to create an environment where students and staff who would use our service would come in and think, this is a really professional environment and I feel valued here as a student and I feel that the college you know, really takes my health seriously and that was really our, our, core, our core ambition in the development of the health centre but also to build it in, and future-proof it in terms of size and that was a very difficult thing to do because as you know only too well space allocation in a university, especially in a city centre campus where we're, we're so confined for space, is, is, really, is, really, is really problematic. But we were very fortunate. I mean, I dealt with three provosts uh, through the development and planning and building of this building and opening of this building. And they all brought something to it. And John Hegarty had met with me several times. We were unable to get uh, a health centre over the line. And subsequent to him, Paddy Prendergast did a huge amount of work in really pushing through the project, but also identifying that we were building the health centre not just for today's students, but for this, probably the students for hopefully the next 30, 40, 50 years of the college. And in that, always thinking to look to the future and not, not reduce the spec. You know, there was obviously financing of a building is very important like we don't charge students to be seen here so we weren't going to generate that kind of income you know to, that we, we would pay for um, the premises ourselves as, as a health centre but uh, he really kept that to the, to the forefront uh, thinking all the time what would be best for students and, uh, and then Linda, Linda Doyle like she came in towards the end of Covid and really then had the real difficulty of steering this Printing House Square, and um, through some very difficult situ difficult times, um, uh, and eventually opening it 
three weeks ago. We haven't had our official opening yet. We no. hope to have that. Maybe we'll definitely have an official opening uh, in the spring. Um, we're, we're so fortunate that we're working right beside the disability service. We've always worked in close collaboration with them, but being on site with them is, is been really, has been really fantastic. And I think that's a real benefit to the students. Um, but also I think for our own team, um, it, it really, it really energised our team. Um, Covid was, you know, for doctors, Covid was, 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 was a very interesting time. It was, obviously, it was an extremely busy time. But I think Covid really put science front and centre mm. uh, in, our, in the community. And it gave our own team here a real chance to... They were already doing all the clinical work in the college, but it was very unseen. Um, and with COVID, all of a sudden they were in the spotlight, and it certainly reminded everybody what it, is. Yes, and I, I, th I think our medical team, yeah. our doctors, our nurses, our yeah. admin services, anything that we asked them to do, they did. Whether it was, you know, going online, changing the way we used to see patients, um, remote prescribing, um, and then delivering services that other university health services just just didn't do, um, you know, such as, you know. Uh, Look, we might come back to COVID yeah. in a minute, but let, let's just stick, if you wouldn't mind, mm -hmm. for a minute with this kind of notion of a student health centre. Mm -hmm. you, you've been uh, head of student health, not just mm -hmm. here in Trinity, but also in Edinburgh University. So you have about a quarter of a century experience mm -hmm. at this stage. What is different about student health to, to a normal kind of GP practice? You know, what, what, what are the particular things, I suppose, I'm, I'm asking that people who are aged 18 to 25 mm -hmm. Uh, of course, students come in all ages, but, but let's think about that age cohort. What do they have to look out for? Yeah, they're, they're just an incredibly interesting cohort of people to work with because there's so many different aspects to, the, to what healthcare means to an 18 to 25-year-old. You know, before they come to us, they've had a family GP um, that's the same GP that their parents have and they've been brought along by their parents and they're, they're coming to just an age where they're stepping out into an independent, being an independent being, and part of that is really taking care of your own health um, and having the opportunity to be in total control of your own body. Mm. And I suppose we, we legally really, and, legally and de facto and absolutely, as well. but de facto, yep. also de facto having responsibility for your own health care. Yep. Um, and I suppose we really respect that, and we really respect that part of the journey that the students are coming on, the younger students. Um, and student health really, if you think, we have a practice population of about 20,000 people, almost all who are under 25 or 27. And that's like a really big town in Ireland yeah. where everybody is under 20, everybody is between 18 and 25. And if you think of that demographic and the interactions that go on in that, in that cohort, um, and everybody thinks about sexual health, of course, because people are, you know, embarking on their sexual relationships, um, and we have lots of lots of our clinical work involves contraception and sexual health and the management of sexual sexually transmitted infections, and also health promotion around sexual health. Separate to that, is that a big issue? I mean, I know people think about it, but but yeah, it is. Know, it is reads a, that it's it, the SDIs are kind of spreading much more in middle-aged people than young people. Yeah, well, it, what has I, I think has been very interesting to us is how health promotion and education around sexual health has really begun to reduce some instances of sexual health-related infections are certainly unplanned pregnancies. You know, there's mm -hmm. absolutely no doubt that the, you know, the percentage of unplanned pregnancies is dramatically reduced than it was in comparison to 20 or 30 years ago. And that's all, all because of education in, in schools and, and also in, in colleges. Let's just be specific about sexual mm -hmm. health before we move on. Like, mm -hmm. what, what are the ailments that, that are yeah, so affecting young people our, in Dublin today? I suppose our commonest, our commonest sexual, sexually transmitted infection that we see is still, we see chlamydia, and then we have seen a resurgence over the last two or three years of gonorrhea, which you know, we thought was gone away, or not gone away, but really something that was really the remit of specialised sexual health clinics. Um, we're very fortunate here that uh, Niamh Murphy, who's one of our GPs, 
um, set up an outreach, the first outreach sexual health clinic from St. James's, probably 30 years ago now, 25 years ago, uh, with Fiona McNicholas, who was the consultant there. And we were an outreach clinic from, from St. James's from the beginning. Um, and that allowed us to really keep up to date with you know, all the developments over the years. And of course, we can go back and say there was an AIDS epidemic in this country. And most of it was related to needle sharing, but some of it was, was sexually transmitted. And we saw a significant reduction in HIV. And then we've seen an increase in HIV over the last few years again. Is it, it, it certainly appears to be a significant increase, yeah, and a lot of that is around education. And some of it is around the effect of the sense of normalisation of HIV as an illness that can be managed with medication, but it still is an illness that has very significant implications for people's lifestyle and their health. Um, we've also seen, I suppose, a, a reduction in in some sexual and transmitted infections, but an increase in others. And, um, so is, that a, is this a big deal for, for, for this is. age group? Yeah, yeah it is. It it's is. not some media yeah. hype or, you know... Some no, 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 it is, a, it is a big deal. But I, sex. It is a big deal. It is yeah. a big deal, yeah. but I, it, it, if we go back 30 years or 40 years in Ireland, you know, condoms could not be bought in this country. Um, and so there's been a sea change in, in how we manage and how we prevent sexual, sexual health, in fact, sexually, sexually transmitted infections. So what are the other big deals? What are the other things that... So I suppose really in, in our age cohort, for student health, you think of minor illnesses. What do students come in with? They come in with minor illnesses. They come in with sexual health problems. They come with sports injuries. And then our really significant cohort of work is, relates to mental health. Or really for, for college health, it's, it's the management of mental disorders or mental illness. Um, we have a fantastic student counselling service that we work very closely with. And I suppose in college, I think they manage most of the mental health. Um, so they come to you and they're referred on off. Well, or, or, they or, or they go directly to, to yeah. student counselling. And now David, you've been around for, mm. as I say, a while now. Mm. Is this something that has got worse, in your opinion, over the decades is it something that stayed steady? Did COVID have an effect on mental health? Yeah, no, how, it, it, how do you see this? Yeah, this? so I mean, I suppose that's one area where that there is data about around this and there is no doubt that COVID played a huge part in mental health for young people. And there, there are several studies. There's the My World study, um, which was essentially carried out by Barbara Dooley's group in, in UCD, but had, you know, um, that's, this is, that's a young person study. And there's fantastic work from Mary Cannon, in our CSI, um, and then there's an ER, ESRI report from last year, and they all say the same thing that there has been a really significant increase. Can you give in us some kind of scope yeah. What really so what, like, what does it mean doubling? Well, well no. Well, what what it really means is, and there's some very interesting data in in the in the Mild World study, and it's 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 set in a student context where, if you think of a lecture theatre with a hundred students in it, um, just give me a second. Over 40 of them will have, will have experienced um, low mood. Um, about 30 of them will, if they had seen a doctor, been diagnosed with a depressive illness. Um, over 40 of them, percent of them, will at some stage have felt that life is not worth living. They're very stark figures. 10% um, of them will have an alcohol dependence. 10%? 10%, yeah. 10% of them will have an eating disorder. Um, and 7% of them will have uh, engaged in deliberate self-harm or had suicidal ideation. So this is, the, th these are, these, this is data from really very, very big studies. And there were two university studies, and then the ESRI did, did a study, uh, a, a very sobering study on the impact of, of COVID on mental health in young people, the under-25s. And it really mirrored what they had found in the My World uh, study and also Mary Cannon's work. Um, but for middle-aged so people like me, what, what I always wonder is, mm -hmm. you know, do we have any evidence of how prevalent it was 30 years? Because of course we didn't talk about it. You, yes. know, you and I are roughly yeah, the same yeah. age. Sure. We know what it was like in college. Sure. Yeah, it just, mm -hmm. no one had the tools. No. The people suffering from it, the friends yes. of the people say, yeah. it just didn't occur to you that somebody was depressed. Absolutely. So 
Well, we had different words for it. You know, we yeah. had different ways of different ways of speaking about it. Yeah. Um, and so but can I we think can we kind of judge? You know how how things have changed. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are ba there's baseline data from the SRI and there's baseline yeah. data in the MyWorks survey. Yeah. And definitely, COVID has had a really significant impact. We've seen it in our own work here in College Health. Um, previously, our GP. So 10 years ago, our GP consultations used to be 10 minutes. And that's a kind of standard GP consultation time in Dublin, maybe seven and a half minutes, 10 minutes. And we, we started to see an increase in students presenting with low mood particularly, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And we, we just found it very difficult to manage those consultations in 10 minutes. Um, now, of course, when you're a GP, some consultations take you two minutes and some consultations yeah. take you half an hour. But we realised that those particular consultations, they, they, they always take longer anyway. So we, we increased those to 15 minutes if, we, if, if, it's, if a GP saw a student that had a, a, a mental health problem and they were coming back. We said that's a 15-minute consultation. And then during COVID, we realised that was really not enough and we were seeing more of these students. And there was isolation. There was, you know, particularly... Uh, international students living on their own and mm. um, very difficult situations we w we had a lot of students who wouldn't see anybody all day mm. and you know they'd be sitting in a room they'd be doing their lectures online they were getting their their food delivered by a delivery person and if they did go out they often in, over that winter the first winter of covid they only went out late at night they never got daylight mm. we have students who didn't have any daylight for several months you know never got dressed in their pajamas all day it was really the, the, that it really had a big, a big impact, and we, we changed our consultations for those cohort to thirty minutes, and our our overall time on managing students with mental disorders went from about thirty percent of our workload to almost sixty percent wow. of our workload, and that was a local demonstration to us, and it has remained like that. Um, so I mean, that's a significant. Workload Absolutely. and cost, basically, Absolutely. to the college, to society. And, and, you know. and, and the college responded yeah. very well yeah. to that because um, my, my counterpart in student counselling, Trish Murphy, and I, and Neil Farley, who's the college psychiatrist who, who works in the office beside me, we all worked very closely together. And we did a presentation to all the schools in college and to the executive officers and the teams managing COVID and just to raise this awareness and... You know, college did allocate funding that we were able to employ a new psychiatric nurse to assist the psychiatrist. We were able to employ additional counsellors, and that has really helped with the management of this problem. But there's no doubt that COVID has left uh, an enduring impact on, on the mental health of young people. And also, we have to remember that. And do you think that will be lifelong for people? I, I mean, do you think in 30 years' time we'll still be able to see? Oh, I think we will probably be able to see it. Yeah, yeah. because we also have to remember that. The age cohort that we have, the 18 to 25 year old age cohort, that is the age group where most severe and enduring mental health or mental illnesses present for the first time. Yes. Bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, severe eating disorders. It's that age group that presents for the first time. And they continue to present, but in the context of COVID, where maybe there, was, there were delayed diagnoses, there were you know, difficulty accessing healthcare, because the HSE, you know, we were fighting a pandemic, so resources were were put into fighting the pandemic, um, and other resources were definitely were, were, were definitely impacted. Do you so think we, we will see an ongoing impact. Do you think, in retrospect, that uh, the rules were too strict? If the rules were too strict, you know, around around in the, the response of this country to COVID mm. was particularly mm. harsh yeah. uh, compared with most other countries, and yeah. you know, more liberties were taken away and, and you know it was a controversial issue at the time unfortunately mm. the the state has not seen fit to, to launch an investigation into yeah. you know how we dealt with it I mean do you think there's a lesson there or do you think it it on balance is probably the, the oh there right? there of course there are lots of lessons with mm. regard to COVID of course there are um, my own view is that I, I thought the state managed COVID really well <laughs> um, because I suppose it it, it really is an, an example of health not being uh, an either or yeah. or a yes or no or, a, or an absolute there's no absolutism and I suppose a lot of a lot of the decision making around COVID really was around how you value people's lives as a, their actual existence as opposed to their uh, 
their freedoms. Mm. And we asked certain groups of the community to really restrict their freedoms in the hope of uh, extending other members of the community's life. And that's... That was that was a, that was a policy decision that the government made. Sure, and yeah, no. we can say we can discuss whether that was the right decision. But that's we could, what I was wondering. We, we, you, we, so, so in other words, we we could have said that um, we could have made a decision that actually we're we're not going to have any. Uh, so it's not only that we, we we could have gone completely the other way and said we're not going to have any restrictions, and we would have had many many more deaths. Mm-hmm. I mean, over a million people died in the U.S. Over a million people. It's a big country, but. But um, in terms of head for head for population, um, you know, there is no comparison in terms of the number of people who died in this country. Let's just so, come back to mental health. For yeah. I, I just, what, what do you think people should do to, to kind of stave off mm-hmm. the lowness that, that mm-hmm. is now so prevalent? And not just among young people, I think. Yeah. Around, you know, what advice, generalised advice, mm-hmm. and of course it varies from person to person. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know that. But there, there are usually some kind of universal mm-hmm. things. And I'm, I'm curious what you find yourself yeah. saying often to people. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I did a, an interview myself with Roseanne Kenny, where I, I, I interviewed the her. Trinity, the Trinity, Trinity academic, yes. who's written a book on living longer yes, and researches this area. Yep. Yeah, and she works with older people. And I think that one piece of, of evidence that she has come up with from her, from her research um, she's responsible for TILDA, the, uh, the ageing research um, study, and was around connectivity with people. And she, all the evidence from her studies shows that people, as they get older, if they can maintain connections, yeah. uh, social connections, family connections, connections with friends, doesn't matter what it is, going for a walk and meeting people, being in a swimming group, find your tribe, whatever it is, that that is really really protective and I really see that in young people Mm. Um, and it's one of the difficulties that students have when they come to university for the first time it might be slightly different from students who live in Dublin maybe there's a lot of students from their school coming and they kind of move as a tribe into Mm. into college many students coming from the country there might only be you know a couple of students in their school coming to Trinity or going to UCD and maybe they all they go to Galway or they go somewhere else and also particularly for international students coming, EU and non-EU students, they're, they're into a situation where they really have to develop networks very quickly. And if they do, and they join, that's the beauty of clubs and societies mm-hmm. here, um, if they can join clubs and societies, or particularly if they're involved in sport, any of these outlets, you know, they create networks. Um, Trinity is, I think it's fantastic in the sense that it has a tutorial service, um, and each student is allocated a personal tutor. So there is one point of contact that the college has that the student can go to independently. Um, and a tutor, tutors are very good at identifying students who they think might be isolated or might not be just linked in or might feel like they're in the wrong course. And you know, linking them in with ourselves or student counselling or any other services, sport, disability, chaplaincy, whatever works for the student. Um, because it's it's really about I think connectivity is the most important the most thing important in, in, thing you can yeah, do yeah absolutely yeah. all through um, your life really is absolutely you say yeah. and con- yeah. continue with it and yeah. it, it extends into the evidence that Roseanne has has has, mm. has, has worked on in, in yeah. with, with older people um, and I really see that with students students who who can connect and students who can stay in groups are there other kind of big ideas yeah. like that that we can well take I, away? I think that there's lots of evidence around mood and exercise there's yeah. absolutely no doubt that from like for for when I was a medical student, we were taught there was two types of low mood. One was called endogenous depression. One was called reactive depression. That was how they were they were defined. And in reactive depression was something awful happened, and you felt terrible. So logical response: yes. somebody dies, and, and you feel yeah, bad, and you feel bad. Yeah, and then there was another type of depression, be. which was called endogenous depression, which um, there didn't seem to be any obvious cause, but the person mm. just felt terrible, mm. and. When I was a medical student 40 years ago, we were taught that reactive depression, that should be, taught, that should be, that should be treated with talking therapies because something awful happened, and endogenous depression, well, that's a chemical thing that should be treated with medication. And it just shows how things evolved, that all the evidence since then was that that was, that was rubbish, <laughs> you know? And that in terms of evidence as to what works, it's really the severity of people's low mood that, that, that matters. And if people have a mild 
depressive illness, illness are mild to moderate, there's absolutely no doubt that talking therapies work best for them. Mm. And if people have a moderate, or particularly a moderate, to, or a moderate to severe or severe depressive illness, there's no doubt that medication is, is the best thing for that cohort of people. And then talking therapies are helpful as well. So things change and, you know, uh, how we look at things change, changes quite a lot. Um, and how I manage those patients, or we as GPs manage those patients, is, is quite different now, I think. What do you think about student diet? It's a kind of a big thing now, a lot of veganism, mm -hmm. a lot of vegetarianism, sure. uh, and a lot of fatty chips mm -hmm. and burgers, you know, depending on the student. Yeah. Do you, and diet clearly feeds into immune yeah. systems, yeah. mood, I think. Is that a concern or is that something it is a concern. that's getting better yeah, one, or worse? One would wonder whether it's actually worse or better than, yeah, than yeah, it was because yeah. um, in general the population's diet uh, is healthier in, than it was 40 years ago um, in terms of balanced diet, but maybe they eat more processed foods than they did. Um, our health promotion officer, the college health promotion officer, Martina Mullen, has done a huge amount of work on students and their diet. We, we, we now go into Trinity Hall where we have accommodation and we have people going in giving cookery lessons. These are, I think some of these skills are lost. Um, they were, they were, most students would have had basic skills in those areas when they came. And with more and more fast food and more processed foods, um, they come to college and they're living independently and they, many of them don't know how to cook a basic meal. And we, we're actually doing quite a lot of work in that area because there's lots of evidence that that diet and mood are, are linked, mm. and also energy. Uh, yeah. um, so uh, yeah, I, I would agree that is an issue. But I, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's better or worse. <laughs> better or worse, but, yeah. yeah. Um, because in general, if, if you look at the height, and the, the height of people, people's height in Ireland compared to 40 years ago, and their general physical health, you might say that they're healthier now than they were. In some ways, they're, they're so not. So is height really an indicator of health? Well, no, but it's it's an indication. Is, is diet, you know, is diet and not not height in itself, mm. but if you look at the general height and uh, general health of the population in comparison to forty years ago, it's the population is healthier. We're living much longer, yeah. um, and we and there are, that's obviously multifactorial. Some of it is diet. It's got to be diet. Obviously, some of it is you know more understanding about healthy living, exercise, whatever. Um, and also medical advances as well then call, mm. help, help us to live longer. But diet's got to be a factor in it. And we're, we are living longer than we were 40, 50 years ago. Um, so, I, Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the average student, let's say, is, needs to watch out about sexually transmitted diseases, mm -hmm. needs to watch their mental health, mm -hmm. uh, ought to watch their diet. It may be that they could make improvements there, you know, if they knew how to cook, say, mm -hmm. you know, because the food is better than it was. Uh, what last thing would you say before we move on, uh, would you say that students could do to, to kind of optimise their chances of being yeah, a healthy person? Yeah, definitely the, the last thing is around, again, about connectivity. Um, connectivity when, yes. when I speak to, to medical students in their mm. first few weeks, I say to them, you know, and... I, th I think they look at me a bit askance when I say, because they, they don't know anybody in their class, they're all new, you know, and I say to them, almost certainly in 25 years uh, time, when you're, or maybe 20 years or 15 years, and you're sitting at home at four o'clock in the morning and you've got a sick child, or you've just got a phone call to say one of your parents has died or is very unwell, you're, you're going to phone somebody in this room and they're going to be your go-to person. And they're sitting in this room now and you don't even know them. And it's because you're going to spend five or six years or seven years, if you're doing a postgrad, with this group of people. And you are going to develop close, embedded friendships that will, that will nurture you and you will nurture those people mm. for, for, the next, for the rest of your life. I know my own closest friends, um, they're, they're people I met in, 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 in college. In, in college. They're, they're, they are. And we are, you know... I think particularly in the courses that, that last that, are, that the students are here longer, um, and especially where students are work are, are 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 brought together in small groups and they stay in those small groups for several years, usually alphabetical groups, and mm -hmm. um, those those students develop very very close relationships that 
um, really, really protect them um, and, and give them great support over the years. So I, I do think that the development of, of networks for, for students is, is, ver is very protective. Yeah. Let's come back to, we said we'd come back to COVID and, and as I mm -hmm. said at the beginning, you, you, you were instrumental and, and vital to, to, to helping the college deal with this kind of un, unknown, un, un, misunderstood disease or whatever it was, illness when it, when it started. Um, we're now in a, to some degree, a post-pandemic world, at least we act as if we are. What do you, what do you suspect is the outlook for the next year or two? And I ask this, and you know, anyone listening to this needs to know that, that you've been very good at predicting stuff. So I'm, I'm genuinely very curious, you know, how you see this playing out. We're talking at the end of 2022 here. How you see it playing out in 2023, 2024? Yeah, well, well, I don't know how good I am at predicting it because right. I, I remember in the end of January 2020, <laughs> um, sitting in the science gallery, I was on a, a panel with um, Killian de Gascon, the director of the National Virus Reference Lab, and Karina Butler, who uh, subsequently, uh, who was a consultant and who subsequently became responsible for uh, NIAC, the National Immunization Advisory Council, and uh, Nigel Stevenson, who is one of our uh, virologists here, another consultant. And I think my level of understanding of the risk that was coming was, was, was very incorrect. Is this a way to so say you don't know, you so don't want to make a prediction about the future? No, no, it's, or, not, no, 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 it's not that. So I'm just saying we, 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 yeah, well, we, so we, we were in that position and... We, we, I think we, we certainly underestimated the, the, what was coming. Although do we, we, did, we did a huge amount of preparation, huge amount of preparation for eight weeks before we had our first case. I mean, we had students in Wuhan at the time of, of, mm. of the outbreak there, and we had students who came back to Trinity from Wuhan. But let's and look ahead now. Yeah, just, so just, I will, you know, but I'm just saying, so yeah. we, we lived through all that, and we've been through all yeah. the peaks and troughs of it. Looking ahead, I suppose in September, uh, I sent an all-college email that I do occasionally and I suppose some people might have thought I was being a little bit negative and I was I was really basing on the information that was coming from Australia uh, in their in their winter where you know they had their worst flu season on record and that then mixed with Covid and created a situation where they had some of their highest levels of uh, uh, absenteeism from work well by far their highest levels of absenteeism. And as we speak ever. in the southern hemisphere, yeah. China is a and flames exactly. and you know, there are so riots everywhere. Yep. It, it, it would be naive of me to think that um, that's not, we're, that we're not going to have another peak. And I, I mean, I'm, the HSE have, have been pretty clear that they have, that they think we will have another peak. And we when have you been say protected. A peak, like a higher number than we had at the top of... I, I don't think it'll be a higher so number. So not a... No, a, no, no, no. Highest peak, but because uh, we have it's to remember, rise again. we have to remember that for the, the whole first six months of the pandemic, or eight months, we didn't have it, yeah. and also we didn't have any vaccinations. Mm. So um, I suppose our concern all the time is around new variants, um, and you know variants of concern, and they really have gone out of the the pub that that has gone out of the public lexicon now. Um, but of course, the scientists continue to look at it. So if you're asking me for a prediction, I would say it is it is likely over the winter that we will see pressure on hospitals. And what has, caused us, what has caused us to make these decisions around restrictions previously has really been related to pressure on hospital beds. Um, but I'm guessing, I, I, I'm curious, if you don't mind me, I'm just mm -hmm. really curious, do you think in two years' time we'll be talking about COVID? Do you think it's just going to be bubbling along and part of people's lives for the rest of their lives? Or do you think it's going to peter out? I, I would hope that we'll be talking about it in similar to influenza. But I would also hope then that we would continue to would be running vac vaccination a, programs for yeah, people. Will it be a harmless illness in the way that influenza is just kills a few people every year because it's got weaker or because we're all vaccinated? Do you think? I, I would say it's a combination of combination the two things. Two, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think there's absolutely no doubt that the vaccination and, you know, you were talking earlier about our, our response as a country to COVID. Our, our vaccination rates were among the very, very highest in the mm. entire world. And that was really, that was a very effective uh, response, I think, a very effective part of the response, which did protect us. 
but obviously not in the first six or eight months. Mm. But it really did protect us. And one might say that the restrictions then, because we were so protected, maybe in hindsight the restrictions went on a little bit longer than, than, the, than they needed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's, do you mind if we kind of go back a bit? You know, the, the interesting thing about COVID is it wasn't the first kind of pandemic or, or kind of mm-hmm. uh, news-catching, head, mm-hmm. uh, headline-grabbing illness that you've yeah. dealt with. You, when you were in Edinburgh... You dealt with the avian flu, but but mm-hmm. but before that, when you were a student uh, in in Kenya, uh, you were there really almost at the the birth of the AIDS epidemic that that, that cast such a large shadow over the nineties and continues to cast a, a large shadow over life today. Can you tell us a bit about that and you know how you came to be in Kenya? In, in yeah, it's it's. I, I when I speak to the medical students, I I always say, you know. It looks like the curriculum is set for the next five years, but medicine is changing all the time. And for most medical students, as part of their training, they go on an elective somewhere around the world, outside of Ireland usually, and many of them go to developing countries. And I think in 1983 or 84, uh, I went to Western Kenya, and two of us went to that hospital, two medical students, where about eight of us went in that region. And two of us went to that hospital, and it was a small public hospital. And it had a hundred beds, and it had four hundred patients. The patients used to sit outside of the hospital during the daytime on, on on the grass outside if they were well enough. And then at night, two used to sleep on the bed, and two used to sleep under the bed. But when we went there, we we there were just two doctors in the hospital. And when we went there, we were told that almost all the patients who would present would have one of two conditions: they would either have gastroenteritis, or they would have malaria. And if they had gastroenteritis, we would give them fluids. And if you had, they had malaria, we would treat them with antimalarials. We had very basic antimalarials at the time. But in general, those people got better. But we were there for a few months. And what became very clear was that there was a whole cohort of people, dozens and dozens and dozens of people that were coming into the hospital. And they didn't have gastroenteritis. And they didn't have malaria. And they all died. Every one of them died. Um, and we didn't really know what it was. But was it clear and to you something else? Oh, it was, was clear on? that it yeah. was, yes, yeah. it was yeah. clear that there was yeah. something happening. But we were medical students yeah. and we yeah. were seeing yeah. the patients. But it, 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 was, it was more than we were prepared for, I think. We were not prepared for that. Um, because they, these patients died. Um, and a lot of them didn't die in the hospital. They were clearly dying and their families just took them home and they died. Mm. Um, and then that, that winter, we, we came home and we started to read about, in the media, about... You know this disease. We, we start to see reports from the states, mainly mainly from New York and from California, and this this was the start of you know. Um, and were people making the, the link? HIV. Because of course they weren't. I mean, HIV was presented as a kind of the gay disease, yeah. wasn't it? It wasn't. Well, you know, it, in, in it Africa, wasn't it wasn't. Clear. In yeah. Africa, no, no, it wasn't the gay I mean. disease at all. That's what I mean. Yeah. Two very but different no, uh, presentations. In, in Africa, it was yeah, yeah. It wasn't like that, um, and so it, I suppose it it reminded me when COVID came. It reminded me a little bit of something that we really had no experience yeah. of, and really became overwhelming because you'll remember in the did you get kind of flashbacks I mean you know th- these things can be very unsettling can't they no I don't, I don't no. think so but I, I, I vividly remember the patients yeah. coming in like vividly remember how unwell they were yeah, and how young COVID they were came, yeah, the, the, or when the, COVID this came this kind of sense of uncertainty of not knowing how serious this might be oh, yeah, and then I, finding I, out it was very very serious I, I, I had quite a bit of uncertainty about it and when I did that uh, seminar in the science gallery with Karina and Nigel and Killian. I was actually much more worried because they were the experts and they knew what this was going to mean. And Karina, I remember her saying, we have been trying to create isolation facilities in the country, large isolation facilities for 20 years. And we've got serial reports that say we need them. And now we don't have them. And we didn't have them. And, and they were the virolo- virology experts and they knew what was coming. And I suppose that was quite a sobering uh, sobering. Uh, seminar that day mm. um, and it was still six weeks before we had our, our first case uh, in Ireland and actually the second case in Ireland was actually in, in Trinity yes, it was a patient. Remember it well, you remember yeah. it well yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, tell me David as we kind of end this you always strike me as somebody who, who just relishes being a doctor who, mm-hmm. who really enjoys the all the kind of complexity and all the different aspects you don't mm-hmm. you don't seem to be pigeonholed or, 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 or in a in a, uh, in a silo uh, have you always wanted to be a doctor? Yeah, that's uh, 
Uh, most people would say you obviously haven't always wanted to be a doctor, but uh, and I, I haven't. Uh, I, I absolutely wanted to be a vet when I was in school, and I always was going to be a vet. And I'm of an age where the CAO had just come into being, I think, a couple of years before I did my leaving cert, maybe two years before it. And uh, I, the, the change of mind slip uh, came in after my leaving cert, and I had applied for the CAO for veterinary in UCD. And uh, I, I think uh, I had a few influences in my family who thought maybe I should not be a vet and be a doctor. And I... I changed my mind uh, the night before the CAO, the change of mind slip had to be in, had to be sent in by post that time. I don't know if you remember Tom. I do indeed, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, uh, I applied for medicine in UCD instead and went to UCD. And um, it's Actually, it's an amazing thing about doing these podcasts. How many academics are at the top of their game yeah. It turns out their mother or father <laughs> changed oh, no. their... It was actually... You know, the, 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 the level of, of course, that yeah. people and, into... And, and the, yeah. Yeah, the, the chance is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have met my wife. Uh, uh, we, our kids wouldn't be here. You know, our, our life would be so totally different. Um, because uh, when I went into UCD, I was on a chemistry bench. We were in alphabetical order. I was on a chemistry bench with this girl. And uh, 40, however many years later, she, we're... We're still married. We're sitting on the same bench. Yeah. We're still on the same bench. Um, and that's fantastic. Um, really fantastic. But about being a doctor... Um, and then was it inevitable? Did you, you know, how long did it take you to work out what it is you wanted to do in medicine? Because, of course, in medicine, one can do many different things. Yeah. You know, it's a very flexible career. Yeah, I suppose I, w- I wasn't uh, your stellar-type student. I was just one of those students who just got by. Um, it was yeah. a completely. I, I just read his note here. It was, was just very modest. But anyway, no, but it on. was a completely different time. I mean, when, you didn't have to be. When when I when I was a student, we had a hundred people in our class, and I, I just feel for students today, it's it's the level of what's perceived as competition is so difficult because when 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 I was a medical student, about every five years, somebody would get a first class honor. Every five years, somebody would get a first class honor an overall first-class honour in the final exams. And it was clear that that person then would become the, almost always the professor of medicine or the professor of surgery a few years later. And about 15 or 20 people would get a, a 2-1 or a 2-2, a, a second-class honour out of 100. And everybody else got their medical degree. And that was completely accepted as that was the norm. And so... And, and you have to remember that those people who all got their medical degree, there wasn't a 2-1 or a first-class honour, they were all the, probably the best or the second-best person yeah. in their class in school, and they got the equivalent of 600, even though they only needed 24 points then and they need 625 now, they were the, still the same core of people. Um, so I, 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 I think um, I wasn't really sure what I, what I wanted. I, I knew what I didn't want to do when I was a medical student. Yeah. I knew the things I didn't like. But I, I really enjoyed emergency medicine, and surgery, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I, why? After, well, I think it's it's the action was so cool. okay. I really enjoyed the action. So I loved uh, accident emergency. Swooping in the emergency doing, part yeah. of accident emergency. I didn't like the twisted ankle parts of it or anything like that. <laughs> but I really loved the, the you know the you know the acute severe injuries, the road traffic accident. I really I really loved all that work, and I really enjoyed a lot of a lot of surgery, not all of it. And so I said, when we went, we went to Scotland for two years, supposed to be, um, and I was on a, doing surgical rotations, and I was studying for the fellowship, not very well, and uh, I was doing cardiothoracic surgery and plastics rotations in each plastics, orthopedics and general surgery, and emergency medicine, and two things happened to me that made me realise that I was never going to be a surgeon. And one was I was I was uh, sitting at a hip operation, and everything was going absolutely fine. And there's a part of the procedure where, as part of the procedure, you have to dislocate the hip, and then everything is upside down. And I immediately realised that I didn't understand any of the anatomy when that happened, because I just simply didn't have the visuospatial skills to to to, to, to comprehend it. And it was quite a sobering moment, and I, I remember it very clearly. And I thought, how much. And it wasn't something I could learn. I just, yeah, I just yeah. didn't have the visual-spatial skills for that. Um, and other people just, it was, and I see with my own kids, they've got fantastic visual-spatial skills. Um, and they can turn shapes inside out, upside down, and no problem. And something similar happened to me in general surgery just a few months later. 
I had assisted or done quite a few open cholecystectomies, gallbladder removal operations, and the hospital I was working within, with uh, hospital I was working in in Edinburgh, a new surgeon came and he brought a laparoscopic surgery into the hospital. Just tell us what that is. And that is keyhole surgery, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so it meant that instead of so opening up, up, instead of cutting and opening and looking in to see where the gallbladder was, you're you're now looking up at a screen and you've got two implements in your hand. And it's I suppose for people who are good at computer games and things like that, it's probably very simple. And I realised very quickly that I didn't have the visual spatial skills for that as well. So that they were game changers for me. And uh, I did a complete uh, U-turn and said I would see what general practice Okay, so you were down like. a very firm road. Yeah. You really liked it. Yeah. But you realised you weren't going to be really good at this. I definitely wasn't going to be good kind of, Yeah. Yeah, this inability yeah. to, to But it also, it, it also explained to me why I was finding it difficult to do some of the fellowship exams around... It was all around visuospatial skills. Mm. Um, and uh, so I... I applied for a, a registrar, a trainee job in general practice, and it was a split job, six months in a country practice, 10 or 15 miles outside Edinburgh, and six months in the University Health Service. Okay. And I did the country practice first, and I really loved it. And it was a completely different pace of life. It was completely, it was, it was and I found it very interesting, which I didn't think I would. And then I went into the Student Health Service as a, their registrar in 1996, and Instantly, I'd say after a week, I knew that I wanted to work with that cohort wow. of people because it was you. You just met you met very in, a very interesting age group of people, and of course, for the first few months that I was there, because I was quite young, um, I thought that I was the same age as the students. But I very quickly realised that they didn't think they were the same age as me, even though I wasn't that much older than than them. Um, but I suppose. You just, you, I just realised that the, the, the clinical presentations and the, the histories particularly of the students that were coming in, they really were very interesting. And in general practice you had more time than if you were sitting in a hospital outpatients. And, and I had a really good uh, GP trainer in, in the University Health Centre. And I, I, because I had come from a kind of an emergency medicine background, I was always trying to fix everything mm. at the same time. And he, I remember going into a supervision session with him. He said, you know, general practice is not like that. You know, he said, you might think you've only got 15 minutes with the patient, but actually you could potentially have this patient for the rest of your life. And in particular, say for this student, you're going to have this student for the next four years and you're maybe going to see them six or seven times a year. So you've actually got an hour and a half with them and it's just spread out over a bit longer. And you don't have to fix everything today. You've got actually this whole time and you'll get to know the person. And it, it was just a completely different way of, of looking at it. Because somebody comes into a hospital so you outpatient, you've got a ticket. Slow motion, but yes, but also, but, it, but there was a strategy gets, to yes, it. There yeah, was yeah. a strategy to it. And I found it very interesting. And I found some of the consultation models. We had, we had Bibles of consultation models. Roger Neighbour was one. And I found them very interesting. Because I thought that there was only one way to interact with a patient. Because I'd come from a particular way of dealing with patients in, in that type of surgical background. And you realise that actually there were lots of different ways you could consult with patients. Lots of so what's ways. the lesson you draw from that? Mm. Well, I think that the most important lesson for me was uh, that I would, I would try to share with people is not to be too definite in terms of how you see things are going to pan out for you in the future and be as open as you can and particularly be open to new challenges. Um, I, I, I had a totally different experience when I went into the University Health Service um, and I, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that except that if you do find the, the type of medicine that you want to practice, um, you'll know it. Yeah. Um, you will know it. I've, I've got friends who are radiologists, I've got friends who are pathologists, psychiatrists, and not all of them saw themselves in those fields when they started off. In fact, very few people. So if you're a um, medical student, there's a type of medicine for you, but you've got to put in the work to find it. And, and yes, but, but when also you do you, find it, you've, you've got to be, you've got to be open. Hands. Because the beauty of yeah. medicine, I think, is that for a doctor, 
you, you, you can choose if you want to see patients when they're sitting in your consulting room or you can choose if you only want to see them after, after they've died and you're a pathologist and you're doing post-mortems or only when they're asleep or mainly when they're asleep if you're an anaesthetist or only when they're children or only when they're elderly you know, or you can look at general practice and kind of have a more broad, a broad um, or you can be a medical journalist you know, you can work in a laboratory. There's just a huge... So medical students in particular, and nursing students, I think, mm. um, who, who have worries about whether they're in the right career, there's almost always a niche for them. But they, they, won't, they can't possibly know what it will be because there's so many variables mm. until they experience it. And sometimes you've got to do quite a, a number. That's, that's the beauty of our training, you know, a lot of different rotations... Uh, also, even as a medical student going through different hospitals and different, you know, you, you, you very quickly, maybe after a day or so, you, you go into a ward and say, God, I would really not like to work in an environment like this. And then you go into another ward where the patients might be much sicker uh, and you say, well, actually, this, yeah, this has a good feel for me. Um, so it's find your niche, yeah. but maybe the, 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 the journey of discovery might come back and be useful in unexpected ways, like Kenya and, and COVID, you know, all those years later Absolutely. in a very different context. But the other thing, I suppose, Tom, is that, and, and this is definitely the most important thing about being, being in a career and being comfortable in your career is really relates to the teams that you're working in. Yeah. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, I, one of my mentors... Uh, he, he said to me that the most important person in, 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 in a surgeon's uh, team uh, was the secretary. Um, that they had to have a brilliant relationship with the, with the secretary of the team because the junior doctors would come and go but they would be working with the secretary for the rest of their lives. And in general practice, when you're in, in a team, um, you build up very, very strong relationships with with members of your team. Well, there you go, and, and that typically kind of uh, inclusive and uh, team-like kind of way, I think we'll end the interview. But, but David, yeah. thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your time and thank you for your thoughts. Thank you, Tom.